Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Hello and welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode six being recorded live across the international dateline simultaneously on December 15th and 16th. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as always, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. How are you doing today, Scott? I'm doing great, Jason. How is tomorrow? Tomorrow is excellent. I'm about to send you some lottery numbers, so I highly advise you to... Great. Our world domination uh, plan is one step closer to fruition. Exactly. (laughs) So for those of you that didn't listen last week, Jason is in South Korea, and he's there... Uh, on business, and I'm excited to hear about what's going on out there, Jason. Uh, so first, are you are you jet lagged? I would love to hear what's going on in the world of digital. In answer to your jet lag question, it turns out that one of my core competencies is sleeping. So I was happily able to sleep on the uh, most of the the flight out here, and so I sort of woke up in the the local time zone. So I've been uh, pretty eager to to get out and uh, watch people shop and and learn about the local market. So I've been doing pretty well. Awesome. What what kind of cool digital or retail trends have you kind of noticed since you're in, in uh, that area? Yeah. Well, so as a primer, South Korea is about the third biggest e-commerce market in Asia. It's like the seventh biggest in the world. So it's about a, just south of $40 billion a year in sales. And that's about 10% of all the retail sales. So in the US, we're about 7% of all retail sales online. South Korea is at 10%. And the, the like leading markets in the world are like the UK at like 14%. So uh, a little more advanced in terms of e-commerce adoption here than we are in the U.S. And part of that is because it's one of the most connected company uh, countries in the world. Uh, the, the government has sponsored internet access, and so there's very ubiquitous wired and wireless internet throughout the country, which means like 70 or 92% of all the citizens are on the internet. And what, what has been fascinating is that while that, you know, digital is sort of innate in in how folks shop here, it has not been a lot of the big uh, international companies that we think of that have really dominated here. For the most part, there have been local equivalents that own most of the major digital and shopping services and seem to be doing quite well. Any other cool trends? How about uh, you're a big payments guru, anything on payments? Yep. So uh, we are in Samsung's backyard here in Seoul. And uh, of course, Samsung has their own payment system called Samsung Pay. And it's almost ubiquitous here. It's It's been pretty fun. It's, it feels a little bit like getting in a time machine because when you get in line at a retail store, it's very likely that most of the folks in front of you are going to use some form of contactless payment and most often that Samsung Pay. And so, you know, frankly, I, I've felt a little bit like a Ludite gumming up the system when I get to the front of the line to buy my coffee or whatever and have to hand them my old school Western credit card to pay for goods. Uh, is Since it's Samsung country, is Apple pretty big there or, or kind of a no-show? No, uh, you, it's the surest way to spot a tourist in Seoul is someone that's using Apple products. So Samsung clearly dominates the local market. There actually is not or there are not any Apple stores here in Korea. So Samsung, you know, does disproportionately well, and it it does not feel like a a super strong market for Apple. And, you know, that's kind of following that trend we were talking about where, like, you know, for all the Western companies uh, seem to struggle to get a foothold here. Um, On the retail side, uh, Walmart tried to enter this market and wasn't very successful. 
Tesco from the UK tried to enter this market and wasn't particularly successful. Google is here, but they have like 4% market share. And there's a, a local search engine, Naver, that has like 70% market share. And so it just, it really, it's really interesting. Uh, we talked a lot about commerce chat last uh, week. And, uh, you know, there's a local commerce chat service called Kakao Chat, which is much more popular than, you know, for example, WeChat is here for for people to do their shopping through chat and conduct transactions and those kinds of things. And then the biggest e-commerce company I could locate is also a local company called Coupang. And it, it was uh, founded by this guy, Bom Kim, who came to the U.S., uh, went to undergrad at Harvard and actually dropped out to start this company. And I think they, they started life as a daily deals site. They started uh, opening their own warehouses and buying their own trucks to deliver goods. They eventually expanded into a, a traditional first-party catalog site and more recently have added a third-party marketplace as well. And earlier this year, they raised a billion-dollar investment from SoftBank at like a $5 billion valuation. So pretty pretty big company that's dominating the seventh largest market in the world that, you know, frankly, I had never heard of in the West uh, prior to coming here. One thing I'm pretty jealous about right now is you're a day closer to Star Wars than I am. Is Star Wars a thing there or uh, no, not not promoted at all? Oh my gosh. It's, it's virtually ubiquitous here. So like tons of, of crazy Star Wars tie-ins for products that wouldn't necessarily make sense. There's a Korean department store here called Shingseg, and the whole store is decked out in Star Wars. So like even when you're looking at mannequins with fur coats, they're Star Wars-themed displays for the fur coats. It's, pr- it's pretty crazy. They definitely have Star Wars fever here. You, you would feel right at home. I wonder if that's a Chewbacca tie-in with the fur coat and all. That would have been more obvious, but this seems like a little more elegant version of a fur coat than the Chewbacca version. <laughs> is, is the movie coming out on the 18th there as well, or is it? I wasn't aware if they're doing a global kind of thing. Yeah, no, I think it's the same day, and I, I even think, like you mentioned to me earlier, that there's a first showing that's slightly earlier, so I, you're definitely going to have to be careful to avoid spoilers because like it, it appears here that you know folks are going to get the movie about a day before you get a chance to watch it. Holy cow. There is a Chrome uh, plugin I've read about that can handle that. I'm, I haven't tried it yet. I'm dubious if it would actually work or not. So I'm just kind of a bit on a social media diet right now. Gotcha. Well, you know, luckily you have me to tell you everything that's important to know from the internet. Yeah, and you won't tell me spoilers though, right? I, I will not give you any Star Wars spoilers. I'm disappointed in this, but pretty confident you are going to see the movie shortly before I will. Ah, You'll probably be on a plane or something. The combination of that and a 14-week-old uh, baby at home uh, makes it a little tougher to sneak out to see the movie. Yeah, totally understand. So while I have been here, I'm kind of curious what's going on in the rest of the world in e-commerce. I know you have some new same-store data from the U.S. Uh, what does that look like? Yeah, so today we came out with uh, December Week 2 where we look at December 8th through 15th, and then we kind of update our, our holiday year-to-date. Um, week two showed a really nice uh, strength coming in at 13.5% year-over-year growth. Uh, that was a good bounce week one in December. We always see this, though. Uh, it, it kind of declined to 10, 10.9%. So uh, Cyber 5 was around 20, and then we, we dipped to 10.9, and now we're kind of at 13.5. Holiday year-to-date, when you kind of bake all that in, um, puts us at about 14%. So Feels like we're coming in at the, you and I have talked several times now about that range of forecasts between eight and 15%. Feels like we're coming in towards the high end of that, that forecast that was out there. And that's the Comscore forecast. Another thing I like to do is kind of look at the shape of the holiday, which is where 
if you look at the a couple of key periods and look at the year-over-year growth rates um, for a holiday, uh, so for example, 2015, and compare it to other years, you can kind of get a feeling for different consumer behaviors. So if you take 2015, and the periods that I like to look at are the first week of November, the second week, the third week, and then the Cyber 5, they're kind of towards the end of November, and then December 1 and 2 weeks. Um, what's been interesting in this holiday is it started out a lot slower than 14. So in 14, retailers were very successful about pulling promotions up. Uh, this year, it doesn't look like that happened. And the Cyber 5 is really when it kind of took off. Uh, but last year, it tapered off pretty quickly. So December week one was higher than week two, was higher than week three. So it kind of tapered off on the back end. Whereas now we've kind of seen more of a traditional U-shape. And, and to be honest with you, having watched this for six or seven years, last year was unusual in that kind of tapering off. Um, so last year feels like people kind of hit the appetizers hard and they didn't really want the main meal at the end. Um, and then this year it feels like we're kind of back to more of a uh, traditional you know, kickoff during the at Thanksgiving and then kind of uh, take a little bit of a break in week one uh, after that, uh, after Cyber Monday, and then kind of pick back up. So we'll, we'll have to see if that continues or not. Also, I think weather plays a big role in this, whereas last year we had all these winter storms. So I think people were kind of like, this is a pain. I'm going to get it done as quickly as possible. Whereas this year, because of the unseasoned, um, unseasonal warm weather, I, I think people are, uh, you know, they're enjoying the outdoors and maybe procrastinating a little bit more. So it feels like the holiday of procrastinators. So it's kind of interesting. What any, any thoughts on your side? Have you heard any news on, on holiday trends? I mean, I think that pretty much jives with what I've been hearing. Like, uh, obviously there's particular segments like the outdoor apparel guys are, you know, certainly not doing well because of the weather. Their certainly guidance is, is to expect sort of a softer holiday than last year. I have, I have empathy for them, but it, it feels like you can never be happy when there's a huge storm and no one can get out and shop. Like that's bad. But when there's, you know, the weather's unseasonably good and uh, people don't uh, realize that they need a winter coat, that's also bad. So it seems like uh, you need really optimal weather. I will tell you overall, a latent fear I have is that now that, you know, we're we're going back to that U-shape, that means the shippers are going to have to do a lot more deliveries uh, on the on the back half of the on that second peak. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm always leery. I mean, I know E-commerce is growing 15% a year, but UPS is not growing their their fleet 15% a year. Uh, so I'm, I'm always nervous about them being able to handle those big spikes. And obviously, two years ago, that was pretty painful. Last year, where the demand was a little more more level, uh, it was less painful. So, so potentially, the fact that we're going back to this U-shaped demand could bode poorly for our ability to deliver everything on time for Christmas. Yeah, and maybe that's actually a factor in the whole thing is maybe um – the shipping debacle of 13 made people kind of nervous and they shopped earlier to make sure they got their packages and, you know, consumers have short memories and maybe they've forgotten all about that. And, um, looking at the calendar, um, well, first of all, it kind of, uh, there's actually, since you've been gone, there's been several articles. There was a wall street journal article, I think two days ago, um, UPS struggling to keep up. And in this article, they had some insiders say that there's still, um, tractor trailers full of packages from cyber Monday kind of sitting around. Uh, and I think they explicitly cited a lot of the target product is kind of jammed up, uh, specifically UPS. So that's a little concerning that, you know, here we are effectively two weeks out of cyber Monday. And, and according to this article, there's product kind of sitting out and, in storage, um, not even sorted yet. Um, and then uh, I saw several other articles that kind of talked about, um, you know, one of them was interesting where um, UPS and FedEx have, have 
bought on a bunch of U-Haul trucks, kind of rental trucks, um, and people are on such high alert around terrorism, they've been calling 911 about this, kind of saying, you know, there's a guy getting out of a U-Haul knocking on my door with a package and uh, they don't they don't notice he's in a, a brown or a, a kind of a FedEx suit. So um feels like the you know that's a signal to me that they are definitely seeing a, a huge influx of products. I think they do this every year, but I, I've never heard this amount of noise about it that they're they're not only supplementing but uh doing it at a pretty big scale. Yeah, for sure. I do wonder if a little bit of that is the the extra alert that people are probably under from some of the like, you know, security and terrorism news that last year when a, a guy got out of a U-Haul and delivered your Christmas packages, you didn't think anything of it. But this year, you're you're a little more suspicious. Yeah, and this got me looking at the calendar, um, and I don't know why I didn't key on this. But what's interesting is usually we see kind of the last shipping day around the 18th, um, and and you know a lot of retailers are messaging that. But one of the things I, I think that's interesting is um, you always have when you when you really break this down, it's the Mondays that kind of tend to be spiky. So you you'll 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 hit a, like the 14th and 7th, for example, of, um, of those weeks we did, those were, were, were the peak weeks of, peak days of those weeks. Um, so if you look at next week, you have the 21st is a Monday. And I worry that people may be kind of waiting around that time frame, kind of 18 to 21. Um, and, you know, because what's happened is Amazon's trained everyone to expect they can get their packages in two days. So if you order on the 21st, you should be fine for the 24th, uh, in theory. But I do worry that, you know, are we setting up for a bit of a perfect storm here where uh, I, I don't think that you know, if, if we saw a surge of procrastinators on the 21st do prime today, uh, a lot of those packages are not going to make it. So it's going to be kind of interesting to see what happens here as we co- go into these last couple of days. Absolutely. I, I share your concern. One of the things that UPS in particular does early to try to mitigate against this is they really proactively go to all the retailers and they talk about their demand and they they – make it super clear that they're not going to be able to fulfill a bunch of unforecasted demand a couple of days before holiday. And and for the big retailers, they usually get them to sign up for a quota to say, hey, this is the amount of packages we expect to ship. And they allocate a big part of their, their quota to those big e-commerce companies. And what that actually means for a lot of the smaller operators are that their delivery capacity is going to be severely constrained on those last couple of days. And in a year where all the demand gets backloaded, you know, and I think your point about Amazon sort of educating people that you can you can order last minute. You know, I, I think it's it's scary, and I I am worried about uh, our ability to fulfill it all. I mean, I think you know fundamentally, our our business is growing at like fifteen percent a year. UPS is not growing at fifteen percent a year, and so you know there's there's a, a fundamental mismatch there. Yeah, and since you've been um, out of country, I don't know if you saw there was a big e-commerce rumor that that came out. I think it was today. Yeah, earlier today. Um, which was Guilt Group uh, is rumored to be close to being acquired by Hudson's Bay. Uh, the one of the articles I saw said that it would be part of the the Saks, so the Off Saks kind of uh, re, um, outlet kind of uh, segment. Um, and you know that in itself isn't terribly exciting, but the I think the valuation that's been cited is around two hundred two hundred fifty million, which is below what that company has raised. So kind of interesting to see some of these flash sale sites. Uh, you know, do really well, have huge trajectories, and now are kind of falling back down to earth. Um, have you heard anything about that? And what are you, what are you thinking about flash sale sites? So I have uh, one of the downsides of being in a different time zone is when news like that breaks. Uh, I know you and I both get a lot of calls from reporters looking for quotes 
And so, you know, I, I was actually woken up by that, <laughs> that news in the middle of the <laughs> night. But uh, my first thought specifically around guilt uh, is that I had some nostalgia. Like, obviously, they had a billion-dollar valuation at one point, I think back in, like, 2011. Um, so they were briefly a unicorn. And I know they've raised more than $250 million from investors in their history. And so, you know, certainly probably not a happy story for the investors, particularly the the late investors. But I really think of guilt overall as being an e-commerce pioneer. And I give them a lot of credit for really sort of creating consumer behavior around these daily deals in the early days. And certainly they were one of the early pioneers in mobile commerce. And, you know, they really experimented with a lot of different user interfaces for their mobile app and their their iPad apps. And so, you know, if it's true that this is sort of the last chapter in Guilt as a standalone company, sad that they probably didn't achieve the economic success that they once hoped they would have. But I certainly look back and feel like they contributed a lot to the um, e-commerce body of knowledge, which I really appreciate. But that being said, I'm not sure I'm super bullish on daily deals as a standalone business. So, you know, I think pretty tough to consistently have a good mix of fresh products that keep consumers excited over and over again. And, you know, I think when Gilt started, the traditional retailers that had a lot of distressed inventory didn't have a good digital way to liquidate that inventory. The sort of school of thought back then was, man, we can't run an e-commerce site for this merchandise because our our product depth is too thin. And by the time customers find it, we'll be out of stock. And and so, you know, companies like Gilt came in and said, hey, we can help you liquidate all this stuff. And they, they solved a real problem for some retailers. But that's no longer the case. I mean, Saks has off uh, Saks. Uh, Nordstrom has the uh, Nordstrom Rack online. TJ Maxx is online. And now I think there's a multitude of ways to liquidate that distressed inventory. And as a result, the daily deal sites like Gilt have fewer good options of products to sell. And so that means... You know, you're a consumer, you might discover one product you really like on Gilt, but you're going to keep seeing that same brand over and over again. And you're not going to be surprised and delighted by all these new brands. And pretty quickly, you're going to get this daily deal fatigue. And, you know, for that reason, I think it's economically tough for a company to be successful as a pure daily deal site. Yeah, a lot of the marketing doesn't work either. So, so a lot of these companies will come to us and say, hey, can you help us with product listing ads, SEM, marketplaces. And when you have you know a thousand new products every day, it's just really hard to get any continuity with marketing. Um, so you know you get no SEO juice, uh, all, all that stuff really really gets hurt. Um, the another thing uh, that was interesting is so so if we kind of go through, you've had Zulily uh, and they got acquired. Uh, Ideally was acquired by Groupon. Woot was bought by Amazon. Uh, Rulala did a whole complicated kind of, they've been in and out through the Michael Rubin uh, kind of set of companies, but they're still independent, I believe, or, or they're kind of part of Kinetic. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I think they may be the last man standing as a pure play. Yeah, deal yeah maybe they are. How about Venti Privé? I, I haven't heard anything. I know their U.S. thing kind of folded. Are they still, they were at one point, they were kind of held up as the shining example. And, you know, I think they also had a unicornish-like valuation. I'll be honest, I haven't heard a lot of recent news there. So I, I'd be, I'm curious how they're doing. Okay. Um, and then any other kind of flash sale news since we're on this topic? There's a couple of things. I, I think you made a great point about the some of the challenges with marketing daily deals. And, and as a result of those, that they've disproportionately relied on email marketing, which is a, a terrific, you know, excellent ROI vehicle. 
But a sort of unsung fact in our industry is that the email service providers have made fundamental changes, which which are pretty tough on the email marketers. And so Google's ability to filter deals from your main email stream, for example, uh, has a disproportionately negative effect on a daily deal site that's relying on you seeing their deals in, in uh, your inbox every day. And so I think that is another contributor to, to straining the industry. I have to tell you, my favorite daily deal site, and this is you know, by no means a result of their their economic success. But you mentioned Woot, and the, I think one of the founders of Woot, my, Matt Rutledge, sold Woot to Amazon. And there's this this uh, famous story about him being the the octopus breakfast in Jeff Bezos' uh, book. But recently, Matt started a new company called Mediocre Labs, which in and of itself, pretty funny name. And their goal was to sort of invent some new e-commerce experiences and test those experiences. And one of the ways... Uh, they created a test lab is he launched a new daily deal site literally called meh.com, M-E-H.com. And, you know, the explanation is, meh, it's another daily deal site. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I don't know how economically successful they are, but uh, very much in the original spirit of Woot, their content and copywriting is brilliantly hysterical. And so even if you never buy anything from them, it's totally worth a daily visit just to read the copy. And uh, I say that tongue in cheek, but I do think that is part of the solution to the, the Daily Deals conundrum is if the content is compelling enough and, in their case, funny enough that you want to come just for the content, then occasionally you're going to discover a product you actually would want to buy. Um, and so you know, perhaps some of the, the secret to making Daily Deals a little more successful is to tie them into folks that are good at producing content. Yeah, the um – one of the other flash sales, Haute Look. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I'm not a fashion ex- expert. You are a total fashionista. I think you nailed it. <laughs> uh, they were acquired by Nordstrom's. Uh, and then um, One King's Lane, did I see that they are hit, hitting some trouble? Yeah, it sounds like they laid off like uh, a quarter of their workforce, which is always a, a worrisome sign. They were a, a fast runner that was really held out as a good example. And then like somewhat abruptly, their CEO left to join um, – uh, Ruben at the sports site. Fanatics. Fanatics, thank you. And so I think he's been gone for maybe a year, year and a half, and now it sounds like One, one King's Lane is struggling a bit. On, on the Nordstrom side, uh, you were telling me uh, in the pre-show uh, that they've made uh, an interesting investment. Tell us more about that. They've been pretty active in the investment and acquisition space. You you mentioned earlier that they acquired Outlook, and they actually use that to launch Nordstrom Rack. So they actually launched Nordstrom Rack on the the e-commerce platform that Hotlook had built. But I noticed last week that they purchased uh, a shoe company, which is called uh, Shoes of Prey. And Shoes of Prey is pretty interesting. It's this Australian company that makes custom shoes to order. And so I think Nordstrom invested in the company and that's a pretty clever strategy for a retailer like Nordstrom because they... They invest in the company and then they virtually guarantee the company's success by promoting the the brand on their e-commerce site and creating a shop and shop to put the product in their 300 Nordstrom stores. So, you know, I, I feel like this is a, a modern way to maximize the retail juice that Nordstrom has by investing in some of these brands before they really help market them. And I, I think we've seen that with Bonobos and Trunk Club and, and uh, uh, Soul Society and some, some other brands as well. It's been pretty interesting. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting model is do you try to do this stuff organically or do you 
if you just partner and you make one of these brands a rock star, then you've got nothing left to hold, right? So the, the one I always hear is Michael Kors and Macy's, where Macy's evidently helped Michael Kors really kind of grow. And then Michael's Kors has gone direct through store and then they've got their own outlets. And, and now Macy's is just kind of left holding not great assortment of their products and, and kind of made them a rock star, but didn't benefit from it. Um, and then another model you have is these kind of labs where you grow it yourself, but that's that's tougher because you know you're having you're starting at ground zero. So Nordstrom's kind of in the middle there, where they they're they're finding these guys that have some success, largely these direct brand kind of concepts, and then uh, they they can try them out in their store. And if they do make them a rock star, then they at least have benefited from an equity standpoint. And and you know. We don't know. Maybe there's some writer first refusal or something in there, or some exclusives that get kind of wrapped around it. it. Seems seems like a pretty smart way to do this. Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's very clever. Um, but speaking of Seattle-based retailers, I actually have a bone to pick with you. Uh oh, what's wrong? I want to say in the last episode, or possibly uh, two episodes ago, you turned me on to Jeff Bezos's Twitter account, and you you assured me that he was. He would not gum up my feed that he had only made, you know, one tweet in his nine year history on Twitter. So I, of course, instantly followed him. And now he's on this, you know, crazy Twitter storm. He's he's now done like four tweets. Mm, sorry about that. I know I didn't realize that he would. You know, he's got nine years to catch up. And, and uh, Mark Andreessen was the same way, right? He was never on Twitter. And then he like is is you know, seriously hit with a storm. He like the guy tweets like. 12 times an hour or something. Exactly. I I like to think it's actually the Jason and Scott show effect that once you get, you know, mentioned and you really, you know, you know, Jeff was sort of in anonymity until we mentioned him. Now that he's, he's big time, he's, he's tweeting all the time. And I, I think his latest tweet, he's actually in a Twitter feud with Donald Trump. Yeah. He kind of wants to send him to space or something. So he's not, not happy with some of his comments. So they offered to send him to space. No, exactly. And I feel like, like he has a a retort that a lot of people don't have the option of is that, you know, he offered Donald a a spot on one of his rockets to Mars. Yeah. The white house just kind of made fun of his hair. So I thought that was kind of, it was better. I think I like the space one is a little bit higher class. I I totally agree. Uh, Here in Asia, a big piece of news this week that like, you know, there's one English-speaking TV show here in South Korea, which is CNN, and so they play the same same news segments over and over again. And one of the segments they're making a lot of news about is that Alibaba has announced their plans to buy what was once the most popular newspaper or most profitable newspaper in the world, the South China Morning Post. Um, and that that made me think of uh, Jeff Bezos buying the New York Times. Yeah, but he actually bought the Washington Post. Yeah, it would be cooler <laughs> if he bought the New York Times, but the Washington Post. <laughs> But so to me, the funny one is, you know, when when he bought the newspaper, there was all these like politically correct statements about how like that his ownership wouldn't affect editorial and that there are all these uh, sort of barriers between Amazon and the newspaper and all these sorts of things. And it, it seems like Alibaba is a little more blunt. I, I feel like there have been, you know, several executives have been quoted and talking about we just haven't liked how we've been covered in some of the Asian press. And so we, <laughs> we bought a newspaper to uh, correct that. Problem solved. It's kind of a billionaire, you know, it's kind of like billionaire thing. It's, they used to do yachts and sports teams. Now having, it seems to be the fashion to have a newspaper. Exactly. First world problems that you and I do not have apparently. No, I, I do buy a newspaper, but it's like a newspaper. Yeah. I, I buy them one at a time. <laughs> I don't, don't buy the actual presses. Yeah. I know we talked a lot about hoverboards last week, and it feels like there's been a bunch of uh, checkered news about them this week. So maybe we should warn our audience before they all put them under the Christmas tree. Yeah, I think we owe it to our listeners to be very careful with your hoverboards. Um, 
The one that uh, I was talking about a lot called the Swagway has been the one that reportedly catches fire, kind of minor detail. Um, there was someone that was charging it in their house, and during the charging, it caught on fire. Uh, and then since then, there's been a number of airlines that have refused to travel with them. Um, and then Amazon has taken them off their website. And then you were telling me that uh, CES will not allow any hoverboards, which is which is a bummer because you can really you can really walk about ten bazillion miles at CES. So I'm, I'm sure you were looking forward to cruising around on a hoverboard. No, absolutely. CES would be the perfect use case for a hoverboard. And I should clarify. There are probably going to be a lot of booths showing hoverboards at CES. I'd be frankly shocked if there weren't. But when I say they're banning them, they're banning them for the exact use case you you mentioned. Like I, I'm not allowed to ride one around the the show to um, save myself from walking. It is interesting. Uh, there's been a little confusion in the in the stories I've read because they they talk about how a lot of these these hoverboards are unbranded and they're imported straight from Chinese factories. And in many cases, the chargers aren't UL approved. And this and that, and that you know those are more at risk. But then that that Swagway brand, like the charger, is UL approved, and yet that was apparently the one that's caught fire. And I, I think I read that Amazon took all hoverboard listings off the site and is making the providers prove that the hoverboards are fully compliant before they get them back. And they're you know this is probably like tiny news in the overall holiday e-commerce scheme. But I part of me almost wonders. Does something like that benefit eBay where like those those listings likely are still there and maybe that that's now the only place you can you can source a lot of this stuff online? Yeah, for I, I had a reporter I was talking to about about eBay in general and I was just checking out some of the daily deals that they that's kind of how you can tell what eBay is pushing a lot and there was two hoverboards on there just uh, just today. So they have not uh, really seemed to have uh, taken much action over on the eBay side. Gotcha. Yeah. Fascinating. So Scott, we have once again successfully wasted 30 minutes of our listeners' time. Yeah. Congratulations. That's good. And we did it in just two days. So I think that's going to wrap it up for episode six of the Jason and Scott show. And uh, we'll look forward to coming back to you next week when uh, we might finally be able to get Scott's Star Wars review. Is that going to be true? Yeah. A spoiler-free Star Wars review. For this week, for myself and Scott, thank you very much, and we'll look forward to chatting with you again next week. Thanks, everyone. May the force be with you. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review. 